Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. It says, Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they, were, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing, and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now we looked at that verse in Matthew 24 uh, last Sunday, but let's look at it again. The statement of Jesus here, he said, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so we're taking that phrase, the days of Noah, as our heading. And we just want to review uh, what we looked at last Sunday. We had five points all together to cover in these seven verses. We covered two of those uh, last week. So let's just review those just very briefly. Um, at least the first one very briefly. Uh, they were days of exponential multiplication. And that's talking about the population. That word multiply, it's there in verse 1, as you see it there in your Bible, just means a massive increase. The days of Noah were a time when there was a massive increase in the population. And we talked last week about what that might have meant. And, uh, and we know that there were at least the opportunity for there to have been even billions of people on the earth by the time we reach uh, the flood. And almost all uh, Genesis scholars and Bible scholars uh, agree on that. But it, at the very least, the word that's there in Scripture says that it was, it was a massive increase in population. And we're certainly living in days of that today. Uh, as we mentioned last Sunday, from 1960 until today, there's been an increase of 5 billion people on the earth. It was 3 billion in 1960, close to 8 billion now. And so they were days of exponential multiplication. The second thing that we looked at last Sunday was uh, number two, and it says that those were days of unusual demon possession. That's in verse two. And what we did is we took that phrase, the sons of God, and we said, let's, let's look and see if there's anywhere else in Scripture where that phrase occurs. Because let me just give you a point of Bible study and Bible interpretation. You always want the Word of God. You want the commentary of the Word of God before anything else. If you can find some place in the Bible where certain words are used or where a phrase or where a topic is covered, you always want to look there first before you go opening commentaries of men. Uh, as a pastor, you're required to study the Bible, and you have a, a library that has many commentaries in it, and I, I certainly am using a number of commentaries on the book of Genesis, 
And they're very good. But one of the things that I found out is that, that good men, good conservative Bible preachers and good conservative Bible theologians, you may have, uh, you know, some that, uh, that ordinarily would agree with each other. They may disagree about certain topics. But one thing we know is that the Word of God is always consistent. The Word of God is always true. And so if I come to a phrase that I don't know what it means, I want to know, first of all, is it found anywhere else? And we found out that, yes, indeed, that phrase, the sons of God, is found in the book of Job. And there it refers to angels, angelic beings who were created directly by God. And so here in Genesis chapter 6, we've concluded, and I've concluded from my study, and not just on the basis of those words, but some of the New Testament commentary that we looked at last Sunday, that it was talking here about demons. And I really believe, I've, I've actually changed my uh, understanding of that. I used to believe that it was talking about just the godly line of Seth, and I stood, stood by that for many years and argued against those who said they were demons. But as I dove into it and, and got into the depth of it a little more in the recent weeks, I personally, and I hold this opinion very humbly, but it's, it's my understanding of the Word of God that we're talking here about demon possession. And so what, it, what it's really talking about here is, is angels who were cast out of heaven with Satan when he rebelled against God. And what they did was that those demons saw the daughters of men. They saw the multiplication that was taking place on the earth and the procreation. They wanted to get in on that. And so the only way that they could do that would be to possess, there would be the possession uh, of human bodies by those demons. Now, I know that that sounds very, very out there. But folks, I want to tell you something. Demons are real. Amen. Demons are real. And the Bible talks about them. And we see them in the ministry of Jesus. We see Jesus casting demons out of people. And I want us to think before we move on from this, just a couple of more thoughts that I didn't get to include last week. But I want to just include them this week just so we can kind of uh, close it out. I want us to think about some of the other ramifications of this in the days of Noah. If it, if, it, if it was a day of increased demon possession, which is what we're saying, that would mean that every child that was born as a result of those unions had a father who was possessed by demons. Now just think about that. In the home, in their life that they lived together. They would be influenced and, and dominated by demon forces and demon spirits. And I mentioned to you last Sunday that our world today, the world that we live in today, is without any question influenced and dominated by demons, I think a lot of times more than we, we really know. And I've had very limited, very limited personal experience with people that I thought were demon-possessed, but I have had a couple of occasions where I was fairly certain after the, after the interaction that I was dealing with someone not just that was on drugs or not just somebody that was drunk or something of that nature, but that I was dealing with somebody that was, was demon-possessed, and there's a number of reasons I won't get into all of that today. And I want to tell you, when you're confronted with that, there is a sense of evil in your presence unlike anything else that that you ordinarily experience. It's, it's, it's fairly obvious what you're dealing with when you're in a situation like that. The Lord gave me some experiences with uh, many men who were, 
whose minds had been affected by the use of drugs and alcohol. But that's a different category altogether. Now, the, let me say this. The use of drugs and alcohol, and you need to hear this, will open a person's mind and open their spirit to be receptive to demons. And, and I really believe that that a lot of times is the entryway that Satan uses to get into the lives of people. But there's a, and there's a warning here for us about that. And for young people that are here today, I would just say to you, uh, don't touch it. I was talking with Brother Bob before the service uh, before Sunday school this morning, we were talking about this very subject, about how there's many a person who has started down the path of using drugs and, and maybe just used one time, and it began a life, it began a lifetime of, of misery and sorrow and helplessness and hopelessness. So don't ever go down that, don't, don't ever use one time, young people. You don't know what you're opening your life up to. You don't know what you're opening yourself up to. But our world today... There are some things, as I said last Sunday, there are some things that can only be explained by demonic possession and demons being at work, the forces of Satan being at work in this world. Now today, as I said, we want to look at verses 3 through 7. And so the third point that we come to here is that these days of Noah, they were days of spiritual persuasion. And that's in verse 3. Let's look at verse 3 again. It says, And the Lord said... My spirit shall not always strive with, and that word strive just means to contend or to plead or to deal with. My spirit shall not always strive with man or mankind forever, for he is indeed flesh, not just speaking about his body here, but in a spiritual sense, he's, he's, he's ruled by the flesh is what this would be saying. And yet his days shall be 120 years. Now there are some people who have looked at this verse, some who have tried to interpret this verse, and they attribute the words here to describing what a, the length of a person's life would be. In other words, it would move from uh, Noah and, and, and Adam and all of these people who live such long lives, and we've seen that in recent weeks, 900 plus years, Methuselah, uh, 969 years and all of that, that the, that the length of a man's life would be narrowed down to much shorter days. But in reality, the words here, as you study these words, they're not speaking about that. They're speaking about the amount of time that God would strive with mankind from the point of, of uh, in the days of Noah until the flood came. And so God announces here that there would be 120 years until the day of the flood would come. And that God would contend with man. God's Spirit would be at work to, to, to draw men to Himself and to, and to, and to uh, help those who were preaching. And Noah was a preacher. The Bible tells us that, that Noah was a preacher. Look at some of these verses that are immediately uh, listed here for you. 1 Peter 3.20 where it talks about the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And so the long-suffering of God uh, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, that would uh, give you the understanding here that God was being long-suffering with men, that He was giving them opportunity to repent. God knew who would repent and who wouldn't, but yet... 
in, in, in God's way of doing things, he, he just seals the fate of others by giving them the opportunity to repent. Uh, Noah, in 2 Peter 2.5, it says, But God saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And so Noah was a preacher of righteousness. I really believe that Noah was almost like Nehemiah. When Nehemiah built the wall that we studied about last summer, he had a, uh, you know, he had a hammer in one hand and, a, and a, a, tr- a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. Well, there's a sense in which uh, Noah was doing the same thing. Noah, Noah was building the ark, but at the same time, God used him as a preacher to announce the coming judgment. And, uh, you know, in the same way that God used Jonah to go into, into Nineveh. And what did, he, what did he say when he went into Nineveh? He said, judgment is coming. Forty days and the judgment of God comes. And, of course, that simple message, when, when uh, it was preached, Nineveh repented in sackcloth and ashes. The, king, the king's heart was turned and the, and, and the whole nation at that time of Nineveh repented. And so that's the same idea here. Noah preached, I believe, for 120 years. And, and he poured out his heart. He had a great-grandfather who was a preacher, Enoch. And his message was probably very similar to Enoch's. And what he preached in his days, Jude, verses 14 and 15. You see it there in your notes. It says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. And folks, what I would, what I would want to say to us today is there needs to be someone sounding the alarm, someone sounding the trumpet, that the judgment of God is coming. God does not allow uh, uh, the, the sin that we see and the... And the uh, uh, the debauchery that we see and the godlessness that we see and the rebellion against God, it does not go on indefinitely. And I would say two things about this. First of all, we are already under the judgment of God. But still, greater judgment is ahead. And we need some preachers somewhere, somehow, some way announcing what Jonah announced and what Noah announced that the judgment of God is coming. And so we see that the Holy Spirit of God was at work contending with men, uh, pleading, dealing with men. But God said it won't last forever. There's a, there's a limit to it. There's a time when it will come to an end. And God gives men here opportunity to repent. To repent. Noah preached and he built for 120 years. And Now listen to me. Listen just a moment. You know how many converts he had? Just his family. If, if, they, if you could count them as his converts. He preached his heart out. He built. He obeyed God by building that massive ark. And the day came when it was time to get on the boat. Only eight souls got on that boat. Now Jesus, when he talked about the days of Noah, also said this, and I've got it listed here in verses 38 and 39. It says, For as in the days of Noah, for as in the days before the flood, rather, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, 
until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. There are people who hear the gospel preached. They may hear it many, many times in their lifetime. And they, as they hear the gospel preached, they have opportunities to come to Christ. And they reject those opportunities. But the day finally comes. Listen, the day finally came with that ark. And it began to rain on the earth like it had never rained before. The torrential judgment of God had begun to fall. And I want to tell you that someday when Jesus comes, that's exactly what will happen. Listen, that's exactly what will happen. The judgment of God will have come and there will be no opportunity for repentance after that day. And so these were days of spiritual persuasion. God giving man an opportunity to repent. Number four, they were days of powerful oppression. Now look in your Bible there at uh, verse 4. And it says there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so that's verse 4, but I want you to look at it in your notes for just a moment. And I believe to, to properly interpret this verse, you need to understand that that part that's right in the middle is in a parenthesis. And so I'm going to read it and, and just leave out that part. Not that we would leave out any of the Word of God, but, but I think you'll see why. It says there were giants on the earth in those days. And also afterward, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And so what this is saying is that those, those giants, and we're going to talk about what that means in just a moment, but those giants, those mighty men, it's not here saying that those were the necessary offspring of those who, uh, the sons of God marrying the daughters of man. That is not what that is saying. What it is saying is that in the same days, there were giants on the earth. There were mighty men of old who were men of renown. And so it's just, it's just giving you a time marker of when this was taking place. Because it, also, it says also afterward, after those days. And we're going to come to, um, you know, the, in, in elsewhere in the, in the Bible, we're going to find that that word Nephilim is used in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. Well, what does the word giants mean? The word that's interpreted and uh, translated giants in our Bible. It comes from the word Nephilim. You've probably heard that. And that word Nephilim just means, it's, it's a kind of a strange definition in the Hebrew. It means a faller on. Someone who would fall on something. Uh, a feller is, is actually one of the words it's used. It's not talking like, like saying that like I'm Linda's feller. That's not what that means. What it's saying is that someone who would, would come and impose themselves on others. Uh, some of the definitions that are given in the Hebrew lexicon are that a bully, uh, a tyrant. And it's only found one other place in the Bible, and that's in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33. And they may have been large men. They may have been big, strong men. And it says in... 
that verse that they were mighty men. That phrase mighty men just means that they were powerful tyrants. They, were, they, were, they may have been large and powerful physically, but they were men of great authority and position. And they were powerful in the way that they dominated and ruled over other people. That was the landscape of the world at that time. These were men who were overlords. And their motto might have been something like this. Might makes right. They were men like Lamech that we read about at the end of Genesis chapter 4. Verses 23 and 24. You remember that? Lamech said to his wives. You remember the the arrogance of this man and the, the violence of this man? Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech, and the arrogance of this guy. Listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, uh, just bruising me. I killed him because he bruised me, even a young man for hurting me. And then he puts himself in the place of God and and he pronounces the judgment. He says, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Here is a man who is audacious. Here is a man who is is, uh, standing up in in almost uh, Tarzan-like fashion, pounding his chest and saying, I'm in charge here. I'm the one who is ruling here. And that's the picture that you get of these Nephilim that are spoken of here in the Scripture. They were mighty men of old, men of renown. And that word renown just simply means they were... They were well known. Their exploits were well known. Now something happened this week that, uh, this happens a lot, but I want to share, share with you where this quote came from. I was texting with someone about a subject, and as so often happens, the Lord gives me just, He gives me something to think about, about what I'm studying about. And we're, we're talking about here of, of powerful oppression and of tyrants. And so I had asked someone, I said, I said, doesn't it look like we are coming up on days of tyranny? And I, I have the text message still on my phone. But it was so good, it was better than any of the commentaries that I, were reading, that I was reading about how this applies to our day. Are, 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 we're asking the question, are we living in Noah's day? Well, uh, what, what is the comparison? And here's, here's what he said. Let me just read it to you. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's... I think very accurate, and I think it's something we need to be aware of as God's people. Uh, This is what we need to be praying about more than anything else. We need to be fighting the spiritual battle on our knees. That's where the battle will be won or lost, ultimately. But God would also expect us to to get up and and put feet to our prayers, I'm sure, in in some ways, at least by voting and by uh, saying things to others. But here's, here's the quote. It's powerful. He says, anyone paying attention can see, and he's talking here about what's happening in our country right now. Anyone paying attention can see this is a concerted effort to tear down America. We are experiencing the beginnings of an attempt to impose a police state, but they don't quite have all the power needed to make it stick right at this this moment. They are trying to make it appear so, though, Because if they can make enough people scared, it will stick. They are weakening structural strengths for this reason. The dollar is weakening. Our military, 
our morality, our patriotism, our trust in government and each other, respect for life, education, etc. If we send all the men off to war after letting who knows who come into the country, we may see a violent takeover. They've already determined we will not stand up to tyranny as long as it is presented as safety for our own benefit. We've shown ourselves to be fearful more than faithful. And so the time is ripe for a takeover if there ever was one. And then he said this. He said, some, in my opinion, are just demon-possessed. And I think I'd have to say amen to that. And so I include that in the message today. And it may seem, some of you, it probably seems out of bounds. But I think we need to, I think, I think the day has come for pastors and the day has come for churches like ours who believe the Bible, who want to be godly, who want to understand the scripture and know how it applies in the days in which we live. I believe the days have come for us to understand that life for, for us and for our children and our grandchildren, and it may end up this way anyway, but we need to begin to pray. If nothing else, we need to begin to earnestly pray about these things and be aware of it. We cannot stick our heads in the sand. We must be alert to what Satan's devices are. And if we care about our children and grandchildren, I believe God would have us adopt this posture. I'm not one of those that believes that you just stay behind the walls of the church and do nothing. And that you just hope things work out well. And uh, you've you got it in so many churches today, you have pastors who are just kind of whistling, whistling sweet nothings to their congregation on a, on a weekly basis. And they're so, they're so uninformed, so, so uh, they, they don't even have a clue how the Bible might apply to, to what's going on now, what God would want them to do. And so I, I hope that uh, you understand the heart and the spirit that, that I come to this with. I, I want us to be godly in every way that we should be and, and to be alert and be aware to the devices of Satan. And so they were days of powerful oppression and folks were there, but we're, I, I feel like we're about to really be there if something doesn't change. The last thing is this, verses 5 through 7. They were days of moral perversion. That's probably on the back of your handout if you just want to look at the back. And we're going to move through this very quickly. Verses 5 through 7. Let me just read those three verses again. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Days of moral perversion. That word wickedness, it's there in verse 5, it means moral defiance of God and what He has established is right. Folks, the one who gets to establish what is right is God. And He does it in His Word. 
And so wickedness, the very definition of that word is moral defiance of God, what He has established to be right. Deliberately doing what is wrong in rebellion against God. And it says there that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Talking there about total depravity. Sometimes in our theology we speak about total depravity. That just simply means that every part of man, his mind, his emotions, his will, uh, you might say the inside of man and the outside of man, every intent of his heart, and this is, this is just a, a powerful statement, every intent of the thoughts of his heart, there's his mind and his emotions, was evil continually. Evil is a word which just means moral perversity. Wickedness that has been planned and premeditated without regard for God or man, particularly that which is injurious to others. In other words, it injures other people. If you look down just a few, well, I've got it listed here, I think, Genesis 6, 11 through 13. It talks about the violence in the earth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. This was something that was going on over the whole earth. The earth filled with violence. Think about that. Think about that. Let that sink in for just a moment. Is that not the days in which we live? I believe it is. Um, if, if we look at the things that are happening just in our own culture here in the United States, if we look at the crime, we look at some of these uh, just awful things that you see in the news from time to time. And you know the insanity of it is that while earth is being filled with more and more violence, you have people chanting in the streets, uh, defund the police <laughs> and uh, take, uh, you know, uh, take away any restraints whatsoever. You've got district attorneys are saying, hey, uh, do whatever you want. We're not going to prosecute you. We'll prosecute who we want to prosecute. We won't enforce the law and the violence. It's, it's, part of the, it's part of the wickedness. It's part of the evil of this world. The violence has, has grown to, the, to such great lengths. Some uh, supportive verses here, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. And let me, be, let me hasten to say that includes us, but for the grace of God, that includes us. Ecclesiastes 9.3 says, Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And, and then that word continually, I, I looked at that word. And that word in our English Bible continually is two words in the Hebrew, and it just means every day. Every day. This was true every day. And then I wanted to look at that word, sorry. It says that God was sorry. The Lord, verse 6, was sorry that He had made man 
on the earth. And down at the end of verse 7, for I am sorry that I have made them. That word is a word which really, the word sorry is kind of a weak, it's very weak translation of that. The picture here is of someone who just lets out a sigh. Have you ever been just so exhausted with something that you just let out a sigh? Just breathe out, you just breathe out. The word means to be grieved or pained in such a way. It's just like a sigh in the soul. And that's what it's saying here about God. Now I want to read this verse in Isaiah. The reason I've put this in here is we need to understand that this is not saying that God made a mistake and now He thinks He needs to correct it. That is not what it's saying. God knew before the world began that the day of the flood would come and that the judgment that He would reign on the earth would come. But it says here in Isaiah 46, verses 9 and 10, and we need to drive this into our hearts plain and, and simple. Remember the former things of old. It's God speaking. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. God declares the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying... My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God is sovereign over everything in the future, everything that will happen. God is not, not only knows that it's going to happen, but He's ordained that it will happen. So when it says that God was sorry here, it's not saying that He was somehow admitting that He had made a mistake of some kind. Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not a man that He should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? In Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, say to them, God's telling Ezekiel what to say to the people. As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn away Turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And then I wanted to bring it into the New Testament with the words of Jesus. You remember when he looked at Jerusalem? He came near to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19, it says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden for your eye, from your eyes. The Lord Jesus wept over the state of Jerusalem. He wept over the judgment that was coming to Jerusalem. He knew that it had been ordained from the beginning of time, but he, he shed tears over it. Now, what does that tell us? I want you to listen very carefully to this. We ought never to think of God, even though He is sovereign, even though He has ordained all things, we ought never to think of God as being someone who is remote and isolated and does not care about us or about His creation. God has a, a heart of compassion toward all of His creation and it grieves Him. It, and that's what was happening here in the days of Noah. God, God was grieved over the place that man had come to. Now let me 
close out these two weeks and next week we'll have our service to dedicate the chapel. We won't be in Genesis. Uh, two weeks from today we'll come to that great verse where it says Noah found grace. It says but, there's a, there's a wonderful word, conjunction in God's word, Noah, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We'll probably look at that two weeks from today. But the question is this, as we think about all of these things that we've talked about, are we living in the days of Noah that Jesus referred to in Matthew 24, 37 through 39? And we've got just a couple of minutes left, so I'm going to ask you to turn. This, these are not printed in your notes, but turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's, a, there's several places in the Scripture they just speak pointedly about the last days. Certainly Romans chapter 1, I'm not going to have time to read that, but in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of that chapter, you can see that there is a diagram. It's almost like a, a diagram in front of you, the downward progression of mankind once he, once he breaks away from God. And, and, and let me back up for just a minute and say this, has as, as that not proven itself true in our country? Back in the 1960s, we, we kicked prayer out of school. Some of you are old enough that you can remember praying in school. Uh, we kicked, uh, by another Supreme Court decision, we kicked the Bible out. You can't read the Bible in our schools. Uh, a year or so later, we kicked the Ten Commandments out. We said, you cannot put the Ten Commandments up on the walls of the schools. These are, these are public schools. And at one time, all of those things you could do. And I, I wonder what people thought. Uh, you know, I was just a little boy at that time, but what, what were we thinking? Did we think that somehow we were going to kick God out of the life of this country and that we would not reap the whirlwind from it? And here we are several generations downstream, and look at what it is what it's come to. Uh, just a few years after that, 1973, you had Roe v. Wade that was adopted by the courts. The murder of babies in the mother's womb. Now let me quickly say, God forgives all sin. Any, any woman here who, God forbid, has had an abortion, if, if you come to God... Through Jesus Christ, He'll forgive that. When we used to go stand down on Airport Boulevard, I always wanted to hold that sign that said, God heals and forgives. That was the sign I wanted to hold because I, I wanted any woman who was driving by to know that, yes, we're protesting against abortion, but there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ for, for all sins. 1973, and then here just a few years ago, the Obergfell decision. In spite of everything that God says in His Word, we shook our fist as a, as a nation. We shook our fist in the face of God. And we said, we will determine who gets married in this country. It does not have to be a one man to one woman. And we, I think at that point, began a toboggan slide toward hell as a, as a country. And that's what Romans 1 says. But look... Look here, I ask you to turn, and I'm not there yet. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've got to land the plane here in just a minute. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 
I'm just going to read this. And you tell me if it doesn't sound like the days in which we're living. But know this, that in the last days, perilous or difficult or dangerous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And it says, from such people turn away. And if you'll go down to, go down to verse 13. And one other description that's given here. And there's, there's a lot of other things in this chapter. But it says, but evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so the question becomes, what... What must we do? How should we then live was the question that Francis Schaeffer asked. And I've got it written into your notes there. We must remember that the battle, first and foremost, is a spiritual battle. We saw Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 last week. We must prepare ourselves in the armor of God. But I want to close by reading this verse, 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Look at it with me. It says, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Folks, I don't know. I'm I'm not a prophet in the sense of Bible prophecy. Life could go on on this earth for many more years, hundreds of years even, it could. But it seems to me, as I hold up that picture of Genesis chapter 6, those verses of the days of Noah as they're described there, I see those very things already at work around us in the world today. And oh, how discerning we must be, and how prayerful we must be, and how obedient to God we must be in the way that we, as His people, live our lives. Would you bow for prayer?